Hey everybody, my name is Ed and this is Current History. This is episode 1 of Revolution in Iran. During the 20th century, three critical revolutions rocked Iran. Today, we are going to talk about the first one. So, first off, why learn about Iran? Think about what you already know about Iran. If you pay attention to U.S. politics, they've been coming up a lot recently. The U.S. and Iran have an adversarial relationship now, with the most major recent interactions being the Iran nuclear deal, an Obama-era accomplishment that stood to cripple the Iranian nuclear program. Donald Trump pulled out of that deal as one of the first moves of his presidency, one of the first belligerent moves he has made towards Iran. If you're wondering why Donald Trump, the man who has turned the Twitter attack rant into an art form, stood by Saudi Arabia through the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi, look no further than Iran. The United States supports the Saudi regime in order to check the power of Iran in the Middle East. But why do we have such an adversarial relationship with Iran? Would it surprise you to know that in the 70s, Iran was seen as a secular and stable ally of the United States? Why did Death to America become a rallying cry for the Iranian people? What drives the anti-American views of Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of Iran after their Islamic Re Revolution of 1979? Well, pretty much none of those answers will be in this particular podcast, but all of that in good time. For today, we're going to focus on some necessary setup for our story. The United States will barely show up in this episode, because in the mid-1800s, they were too busy completing their genocide of the Native Americans and fighting a ruinous modern war against themselves. You gotta remember, we didn't really get our shit together as even a regional power until the First World War in 1914. We were gonna yada 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 through about a thousand years of history to understand how Iran fits into modern history. The purpose of this episode is to establish the roots of later conflict in Iran, both within the Iranian people and in foreign imperialism. For today, our guiding questions are, why is there an ideological divide in the Muslim world between Sunni and Shia? How did Western imperialism ignite the conflict between the rulers of Iran and their people? Why the hell are the British and Russians even involved in Iran? And how did the 1911 Constitutional Revolution change the course of Iranian history? In the world today, 90% of the current Muslim population is Sunni. That would be countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Turkey. The remainder are mostly Shiite, and most live in Iran. Why? To understand that, we have to go way back in time. Iran is known as Persia with a long history of glorious conquerors running back to Cyrus the Great. It's easy to forget just how damn much history there is in a particular spot when you live in the United States, but Persia was the cradle of civilization, so they had old shit lying around by the bucketful. Large swaths of our understanding of Persian history comes not from the Persians, but from the Greeks, which is how we get the image from the movie 300 of a despotic empire with a single god-king and a nation of slaves. In reality, Persia was the fun uncle as far as Middle Eastern empires go, and they made a name for themselves as tough warriors, but also people willing to make a deal and peacefully absorb new areas into the empire. Cut to the year 632. 
Mohammed, the founder of Islam, has taken the world by storm with his hip new religion, and all the cool kids are doing it. He's conquered a huge chunk of territory, and then, like all conquerors who are remembered for their success, he died and ollied the fuck out before he actually had to deal with holding an empire. As us lowly humans are wont to do, everyone immediately started losing their damn minds about who would be in charge next. This happens all over the place in history, where huge, powerful movements are brought to their knees in a second, because people die all the time when your standard medical treatment is chop it off and pray about it. And every time the guy in charge dies, his top ten guys immediately start squabbling like kindergartners fighting over whose turn it is to get the fire truck. Sunni is the largest sect of Islam, but Shiite beliefs branch off of it in that they believe after Muhammad dies in 632, a different person should have been put in charge, Ali, a cousin of Muhammad who was very close to him. Muhammad made a big speech before he died where he said in no uncertain terms that this Ali guy should get the keys to the kingdom, but his opinion suddenly mattered a whole lot less once he was dead. Eventually, Ali did get the top job because the turnover on joint religious and military leaders was whack. Ali was the fourth caliph until he was assassinated while praying. Later, Hussein, his son, was also killed, leading a revolt against an oppressive government. And both are revered in Shiite tradition as martyrs. So, other than that being an obvious bummer when your family expects you to join that business... The martyrdom of Ali and his son inspired Shia belief in fighting against oppressors even when the odds were hopeless, especially if those oppressors are the government. Shiite comes from Shiat Ali, or followers of Ali, and this is still a big deal in Iran today. And Iranian Shia Muslims take part in a public mourning every year on the anniversary of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, the son of Ali. Iranian strongmen train and compete to have the honor of carrying heavy funeral objects, and they publicly mourn. So, what gives? Why is Iran so committed to a separate branch than 90% of Muslims? Well, that all comes from my boys, the Safawid dynasty, who form a critical part of Iran's current national identity. Fast forward to 1200. Iran is directly, is directly in the path of the Mongol invasion, which is a huge bummer for them. The Mongols are the go-directly-to-jail-do-not-pass-go-do-not-collect-two-hundred-dollars of history. Luckily for Europe, right before the Mongols kicked over their sandcastle, their leader dies and they all have to go back to Mongolia to squabble over the best toys. In 1501, a man came to power in Iran named Shah Ismail I, becoming the first Shah of the Safawid dynasty, which was inspired by Shiite belief. He made Shia the state religion, despite Iran's majority Sunni population at the time. Initially, people were not terribly happy about switching religions, but it was the 1500s, and even if you were a landowning white man in Europe, you still had roughly fuck-all political power. Within a few hundred years, the people of Iran came around, and now they are a Shia nation. This puts a powerful state backing the Shia branch of Islam. Abbas Shah was a Safawid king who is still remembered kindly in Iranian history for centralizing control of the country. He ruled from 1588 to 1629, and despite his role in forming the country, he's also famous for having tortured and executed a lot of people, and had his sons specifically not prepared for leadership so that they would not usurp him. 
He also had his eldest son murdered, as well as having two sons, two brothers, and his dad blinded. So, you know, you gotta take the good with the bad in old-timey rulers. After Abishad died, the kingdom fell into disarray, because, duh, what the hell do you think was gonna happen when he blinded every idiot who might take over next? Now, after long after him came Nadir Shah, who led the country through the 1722 sack of the capital by Afghani tribesmen. And then in 1747, Nadir Shah is assassinated, and with him goes the Safawi dynasty, and the Qajar dynasty comes to power. Now, the Qajar dynasty is the biggest bummer for Iranian history since the Mongols. They rule from 1747 to 1925, and are famous for running the country like a personal piggy bank and selling government functions to foreign powers like they were running a lemonade stand instead of a nation. By around the start of the Qajar dynasty, the Shia clergy had developed a religious hierarchy, and those who were most influential in Islamic studies were given the title of Ayatollah, meaning sign of God. This meant the solidification of a very important block of, in Iranian politics, the ulema, or religious leadership of the country. The group was often divided down similar lines as other areas dealing with Western encroachment, with some advocating xenophobia while others promote modernization through Westernization. The ulema are an important block to have on your side if you're looking to hold power or take power in Iran. Meanwhile, the Qajars were pursuing a notably different policy from Abbas Shah's attempt to centralize the state. They employed a small standing army and relied on alliances with regional tribal leaders to maintain control of the country. This meant that they were much more light-touch than previous rulers, but they also had much weaker control. In order to fund a lavish palace lifestyle, they needed foreign currency to buy bougie-ass tea and crumpets, or whatever fancy crap Europe was selling. So like a toddler with mom's credit card who just discovered Candy Crush, they start taking out loans and running up debt like there's no tomorrow. Now, whereas mom's credit card puts you in debt to a bank, loans from Britain and Russia are more like getting a short-term loan from Skag, the loan shark behind the 7-Eleven. And they are just itching to do the country equivalent of breaking your kneecaps if you can't pay. Qajar King's dependence on loans from Britain and Russia drew the state into the concession spiral, where they would sell off specific industries or rights within the country to secure more loans. Britain and Russia are the two major powers active in Iran during this time because they were involved in the Great Game, competing for colonial control of, of the Middle East and Central Asia. Britain was primarily interested in Iran as it was involved in defense of India until the discovery of oil in Iran in 1908. Both Russia and Britain competed for influence and control of Iran, and the Qajar kings were happy to run the country purely for their own benefit, selling concessions and taking out foreign loans. For a look at how this concession selling worked, we can look specifically at Nasir al-Din Shah. This whole process began under Nasir al-Din Shah Qajar, the ruler of Iran beginning in 1848. This was immediately following the British prosecution of the First Opium War in China, in which a few British gunboats destroyed the Chinese navy and blockaded the Grand Canal, bringing all green taxes in the country to a screeching halt and displaying the terrible power of the Europeans with their death machines. 
The British East India Company is in charge of India, and the British are looking at Iran as it relates to the defense of India and control of the interior. But oil hasn't been invented yet, so no one has any reason to get sandy and sunburnt yet. It's in this fraught environment that the Shah is thrown with his weak grip on the country. So the Shah begins selling concessions to European powers, soon to be a Qajar favorite. Think of concessions like stocks in a company. If you own 100% of the stocks, you completely rule the country. But if you start selling things off piecemeal, it doesn't seem like you're losing much power at all. You are just selling the right to run an industry or build railroads or station troops within your country to protect foreign interests. But just like stocks, the more you sell, the less your opinion is the only one that matters in running the country. If you sell too many, then you get Zuckerberg, and other people can decide what they want and just force you to go along with it. The Qajars start off, started off simply by selling the rights to build a telegraph line through Iran to the British. With that, the floodgates opened, and suddenly meets back on the menu, boys. The French, Germans, Aus Austrians, British all compete in the concessions hungry, hungry hippos to buy concessions throughout the country. In 1872, Reuters, a British rich guy, pulls in a whopper of a concession. Known as the Reuters Concession, it granted him the exclusive rights to, quote, run the industries, irrigate the farmland, exploit mineral resources, develop rail transport, establish a national bank, and print money, end quote. It's kind of like when Trump was searching for a vice president and was offering people control of foreign and domestic affairs. Like, isn't that all the affairs? The people were not happy with the Shah's attempt to concede himself out of a job, so the Reuters concession only stood for one year. There was also protest by foreign powers, primarily Russia, unhappy about losing power. Canceling it just meant that the Shah could sell the same things in a bunch of different tiny packages so that he could afford a 17th golden toilet seat or whatever the shit he was spending this cash on. By 1890, the Russian Cossack Brigade of four to 600 troops is the most organized force in the entire country, and the Imperial Bank is completely under the control of Reuters. Now, if the Trump presidency is any indication, people will tolerate a lot of stupid bullshit from their government. But if you mess with people's distractions and their livelihoods, you will find yourself with riots in the streets. For the Shah, it seemed like just another concession to sell when the British Imperial Tobacco Company bought the rights to the Iranian tobacco industry in 1891 for £15,000. Terms required all tobacco growers in the country to sell to the British, and all cigarettes had to be bought from them. Iran was a country of smokers at this point, and there was an entire cottage industry growing, drying, and packaging tobacco. The Iranian people lost their collective shit. A broad swath of the country resolved to resist this affront by the monarchy and intrusion by foreign industry, including intellectuals, farmers, merchants, and clerics. Iran's leading religious figure, Sheikh Shirazi, went as far as declaring a fatwa, an Islamic religious order, that for as long as foreigners control the tobacco industry, smoking would be against Islamic law. Even the Shah's wives and his harem stopped smoking, finally bringing home just how badly Nassar Aldin Shah had, done, had gone against public opinion. The Shah canceled the concession and was forced to borrow money to pay half a million pounds to the British to compensate them. 
1896, the Shah is shot to death while visiting a mosque in Tehran. He was not remembered kindly by his people for the rampant foreign imperialism he allowed into the country. He was succeeded by his son, Mazafar ad-Din Shah, who in 1901 sells the Diarchy Concession, giving a British company the exclusive right to any natural gas and petroleum in Iran for 60 years. Diarchy would wouldn't end up finding oil for nearly a decade, but this concession would later be exploited by the British. Many people within the country were mad at the Shah for his most recent concession, giving control of customs within the country to a Belgian. As this affront was still fresh in Iranian minds, the Russo-Japanese War broke out. Alright, y'all. I'm about to kind of geek out about this one for a sec, because the Russo-Japanese War sets off a lot of changes in the colonized world, because it was a stark example of a non-European power successfully modernizing and defeating a European power. This was seen through the colonial world like that guy from The Hobbit spotting the missing scale on the dragon. Now, in 1904, Japan launches a surprise attack against Russia at Port Arthur, a concession port in China. They attacked without warning, catching the Russians off guard and sinking a portion of their, navy, of their navy in the port before war had been declared. Sound familiar? So what is a collection of icy farmland masquerading as a world power to do? Russia looks around for ways to put the screws to Japan, decides that this affront will not stand, so they decide to send their Black Sea Navy halfway around the world to fight the Japanese. Now... I don't know if they owned a map, but the Black Sea and Japan are not close, especially if you are not particularly friendly with the British who control the Suez Canal. So half the Russian fleet has to go around the Horn of Africa, and after a six-month journey, they finally arrive, just to be smashed in a day. We are talking the spanking herd round the world here. In 1905, Russia accepts a negotiated settlement that, despite their military loss, puts things back how they were when the war began. The world woke up to a, to a shockingly modernized Japanese imperial army and navy, and the military failures set off a revolution in Russia that forced a constitution and a representative body called the Duma. This disrupts trade with Iran, causing sugar and grain prices within the country to meteorically rise. Now, for this price increase in sugar and grain, in December of 1905 in Tehran, the governor orders two sugar merchants to have the bottom of their feet beaten, a punishment known as falak. This was an affront to the bazaaris, who were a critical political power block of merchants and guilds within the city. The bazaaris were powerful in the cities and were capable of shutting down the flow of goods within Tehran. But what made this protest truly notable was that the Bizarris were joined in the protest by leading figures in the ulema, the most influential voices in Shiism. This led to a popular uprising, beginning with demands that started small, asking for the removal of the governor, but that ended in demands for Sharia law, the removal of the concession of customs to the Belgians, and the establishment of a house of justice, a representative body. I should point out that Sharia law is used as a bit of a boogeyman today, but at that time it was a huge step up in legal representation for ordinary people. The Shah agreed to constitutional reform to end the revolt, then dragged his feet on the actual establishment of the representative body. It took another year of unrest to reach a boiling point, 
but the final nail in the coffin of absolutist rule by the Shah was a potential mutiny of the Cossack Brigade, because he couldn't pay him. This led to the ailing Mazafar Adin Shah finally signing an order convening the Mahalis, a representative body that immediately began writing the constitution of the country. This was a pressing concern since the Shah was close to death and his son, Muhammad Ali Shah, was against the idea of constitutional restraints on his rule. In October, the Mahalis were first convened, and in December they finished drafting a constitution and the Shah ratified it. He died only five days later. Now, despite taking an oath of loyalty to the constitution, Muhammad Ali Shah wanted to return to autocratic rule of the country. Meanwhile, the Mahalis passed reforms of taxation, education, and the legal code. These sudden reforms made the ulema uneasy, and they feared both a loss of power and people being drawn away from religion to legalism. This split began to show the cracks in the alliance between constitutionalists and religious figures, a conflict which would continue through Iranian history. While some of the ulema supported modernization, some of the most vociferous were against what they saw as the eroding of their traditional customs and ways of life. They made arguments like, certain persons will insist upon religious freedom, which is contrary to the interests of Islam. In a debate on legalizing secular schools, quote, will entry into them not lead to the overthrow of Islam? Will lessons in foreign language and the study of chemistry and physics not weaken the student's faith? End quote. The clash between the forces of religious figures and the ulema, the monarchy, and modernization would shape Iran for years to come. In 1907, Britain and Russia signed a treaty, without including the Iranian government, to end the hostilities in Iran, dividing the country into three zones, the north ruled by Russia, the coast ruled by Britain, and the Iranian government under control of a slice in the middle. In June of 1908, the Shah sends sends the Cossack Brigade to attack the Mahalis, arresting and executing many of them. This sent the country into an uproar as monarchists and constitutionalists wrestled for control of the major cities. This unrest emboldened Russia to send troops to Tabriz in the north of Iran to quell the rebellion. In 1909, the rebel forces sweep back into Tehran, deposing Ali Shah, forcing him into exile in Russia. Muhammad Ali Shah was replaced by his young son, Ahmed, not crowned for five years until 1914. By this point, many of the ulema had switched sides and were fully supporting the royalists. The remaining Mahalis tried to rule the country, but it was in a state of chaos with tribal leaders controlling large areas and banditry run rampant. The Mahalis hired an American, Morgan Schuster, as financial advisor, and he began to make real progress repairing the chaos of the Iranian government's financial situation. But guess what? A stable Iranian government isn't in the interest of anyone but the Iranian people, so the imperial powers decides they have to cut that shit out immediately. Russia resented this outside interference in their sphere of influence and demanded the Mahalis fire Schuster. When the Mahalis promptly told Russia to get bent, the Russians sent troops to Tehran to enforce their will, and before they got there, there was an internal coup in the Iranian cabinet, and a pro-Russian wing took over to tell the advancing army that they had decided previous decisions had been poor ones. Both Schuster and the Mahalis were dismissed December 1911. 
This brought an end to the 1911 constitutional revolution in Iran. While short-lived and snuffed out, the Iranian people now had an example of democracy to remember in the dark days of autocratic rule ahead. The revolution of 1911 was short-lived and ended by foreign invention, but its results would live on. The revolution had awakened the Iranian people to the control foreign powers exerted over their state, preventing meaningful reform, and it displayed that those forces could be resisted. It also gives us a good example of what an Iranian revolution looks like and requires. There are key power groups like the ulema, the merchants, the military, and the people. It is not enough for one of those groups to rebel, it requires a continuing alliance between a broad swath of Iranian society. Schuster's involvement and the attempted reforms of the government show that at this point, America was viewed not as an imperial power, but as a potential ally against European empire, originating from rebel colonies themselves. From this point, you could imagine an alternate timeline where the United States was the champion of the colonial world, a behemoth that understood the oppression of foreign rule and taxation without representation. Unfortunately, as America awoke from their isolation and took their first shaky steps onto the world stage, they were seduced by the same colonial hysteria that gripped Europe. The colonies that had chafed under British domination had grown up, and now they sought their own states to dominate. This also brings an end to Episode 1 on the Constitutional Revolution. Episode 2 will have much more American involvement, if that's your jush, but it's also going to get a lot less positive. We will see British spies and paid government mobs, CIA plots, and the impact of oil on Iranian history.